How we doing? Amen. It is great to see you guys again on this morning. I want to start with a little mental exercise before we get too far. If you're a guest with us, feel free uh, to participate, but you might not necessarily know anything that we're asking. And if that's okay, uh, you can participate by just watching the members and the friends of this church squirm as we work through the mental exercise. Amen. Praise God. So show of hands, who in the room knows one of our six values, one of the six values of City Light Church? This is the easiest part of this exercise. All right. Praise God. Somebody yell one out for me. (laughs) Amen. We're going to go with Brittany. Thank you, ma'am. Christ-centeredness. Amen. How many people know two values? Keep your hands up, those who knew one. Two values. Still hands up? All right. Give me another value. What's that? Dedicated discipleship, three values. Keep your hands up if you know three. Who gave me, what was that? Resilient realness. Thank you, ma'am. Three values. That's awesome. Four values. Keep your hands up if you still know four. Somebody shout it out. Thank you, sir. Five values. Anybody got five values? Give me. Emptying empowerment and six value. Anybody got six value? Dedicated discipleship. Look at y'all. Would y'all give them a hand praise? Praise God. Look at them. Christ-centeredness, compassionate conviction, universal unity, dedicated discipleship, resilient realness, emptying empowerment. All right. I didn't give it to you in the order that we normally do it because there's actually a memory mnemonic that we use for this, and it's Christ-cured. Christ-cured. C-U-R-E-D. Compassionate conviction, universal unity, resilient realness, emptying empowerment, dedicated disciple-making. Christ cured. And, and if you notice, we give Christ its own, you know, we got like initials for the rest of the values, but we got Christ for, for the first part of that memory device, that memory mnemonic to help us remember it. And there's a reason for that. It's because the other values, while important, aren't as important as that first value. The first value, Christ-centeredness, is the value by which all the other values are built upon. It's the foundation of those values. Those values are fed through that first value, Christ-centeredness. Living life in a way that communicates to the world that Christ is king. That's, that's in a nutshell what Christ-centeredness means. And so what we want to do this morning is spend a little time unpacking the value of Christ-centeredness and why it is so important to the life of this church. We want to do that through the Apostle Paul in Philippians, Christ-centeredness through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. So in this text, Paul makes abundantly clear that nothing is more important to him, at least, in all of the universe than knowing Christ more and more. Christ-centeredness. Everything he is doing, all of his activity is being funneled through this funnel of Christ-centeredness. And so I want to look at what Paul says about that in particular, what, about what Paul says about this ideal of Christ being the center of everything. And I want to look at the trade-off first what, what Paul trades in favor of knowing Christ. And then I also want to look at what Paul says in terms of how to know Christ. So the trade-off in knowing Christ, and then, and then what is Paul saying? How is Paul telling us how we should know Christ? 
And so leading up to verses 7 through 11 in this text, the, the Apostle Paul is issuing a warning to the Philippian church, urging them to, to watch out for the people that, that, would, that would, were, were looking to, to, to establish right standing with God through themselves. The first verses in this chapter, verses 2 through 6, were written as if he was seeking to answer a simple question, and that question was this. What qualifies us as righteous in God's eyes? Those who Paul was writing to or those who Paul were writing to in this letter thought the answer to this question was their own works and their their own deeds and their own accolades and their own accomplishments. And so these opponents that he's speaking to were, were, were from the Jewish camp. They were Judaizers, as they were called. They took confidence in their, their nationality. They took confidence in the following of their, their customs. They took confidence in the following of the laws and then, and then the right, and, and in the right, uh, following of the, uh, rituals of, of the Judaic religion including the circumcision of the flesh. They took confidence in the festivals that they observed. But Paul argues strongly against their position by first saying a couple of startling things. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs, which is an interesting interesting way to phrase this considering how how some of these same Judaizers would be people that oftentimes viewed many of the Gentile people who were a part of this Philippian church as such they would see this group of people these outsiders these these people that were unclean in their eyes these people who were not ceremonial uh, uh, cer- ceremonially acceptable they would see them and they would, and they would consider them to be dogs. And so, and so here Paul is saying, watch out for the real dogs. It's as if it's like a, a, a back at you type of comment, right? For those that are professing Christ and yet remain seeking righteousness within themselves. He says, watch out for the real ones. And then he continues, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our accolades. We put no confidence in our uh, following of custom and rituals. We put no confidence in a physical circumcision as making us righteous and clean. Paul is saying that the truly circumcised aren't the ones who are looking to find righteousness in the physical act. Of circumcision, rather the truly circumcised are the ones who are looking to Christ Jesus for righteousness. And Paul makes his case for this argument by putting himself up as an example. With this point being, if if they knew my religious resume, they would have known that I, above all people, should be looking to myself to find righteousness. That's Paul's point. And so in verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If there is anyone amongst us who should be confident in their flesh to have saving, redemptive power, it should be me. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul continues in verse 4, I have more. And so he then begins to unpack what he means in verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. I conducted the right rituals. 
I was not late to the game. I was not a uh, proselyte who, who was converted at adult age and then got circumcised later. I was circumcised on the eighth day as a baby out of his mother's womb. I've always been a part of this group. I've always been on the inside of this camp. Some of us may say, I've been at church my whole life. He says, I was of the people of Israel. In other words, I belong to the right race and ethnicity and nationality. I was, I was part of God's chosen people. I was a part of the, uh, of the Israel by bloodline. We see people making, fighting and warring for this, for this distinction even in current day. With the, with the, with the black Hebrew Israelites, for example, they fight in a war to be considered true Israel. And why is that? Because they, the, they, they believe that in representing the true Israel, they themselves are found distinct and special. And there's a designation that esteems them above everyone else. And so they fight to try to say, no, 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 no. We are the true Israel. We are the Israel by blood. And they have all sorts of compelling reasons as to why they make the case for that. Paul says, hey, there is no debate about me. I am of Israel. There was an Iowa senator, U.S. senator, just this past week who is now receiving backlash because he himself desired to raise his ethnicity above the ethnicity of others. In the art, in an interview that, that was conducted, he said, white nationalists, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become so offensive? What's wrong with it? These are sentiments that speak loudly and they say, my race and my nation is superior to yours of the people of Israel. Paul says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was I a part of the particular people, but I was a part of the people within the people that can be considered special. I belong to the right people within my race. Not only was I in God's chosen race, but I was in one of his select tribes. The tribe of Israel is where Jerusalem resided. The tribe of Israel was one of the two tribes of that, that, that was a part of the uh, Davidic covenant. That was a part of the Davidic kingdom that did not separate during that time in which the kingdoms uh, in the kingdom was being divided. In other words, he's saying, not only is my race superior to yours, but my family is superior to yours. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. My traditions were superior to yours. As to a law, or as to the law of Pharisee, my morality was superior to yours. I followed the rules that, 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 I followed rules that weren't even a part of the law in order to keep the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, my passion was superior to yours. You think you have passion? You think you love God? You haven't seen anything. I persecuted the church out of love for God. As to righteousness, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. My obedience to the law of God was superior to most. And so Paul says, if you want to rank this on natural standards, if you want to rank this based on the economy of this world, and you want to compare resumes according to these guidelines, then I'm better. I come from the right people. I come from the right family, the right tribe. 
My morality is sound. My passion is towering above most. So the question is, why doesn't he continue holding these these lines, these standards, this resume? Why doesn't he continue to hold this resume for his righteousness? And the answer is because he has found something better and found something sufficient to save. So this is where verse 7 picks up when Paul's describing the better. He says, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hear that, hear that. Paul describes how, how all these things, he lays out all these things that elevates him above all else, above all people, above other people, above these people that are making comparisons of righteousness to each other. He highlights all of these things that elevates him above these people. And then he says, none of that matters. Not my family, not my race, not my, not my zeal back in the day, not my, not more, my morality and my conformity to the law. None, none of that matters as it relates to value. As he begins to evaluate life, what he does is literally turn the the, the measuring of life completely on his head. And what he once considered essential is now made meaningless to him. And what was once considered of ultimate value is now considered of no value to him. Gain has become loss. Advantage has become disadvantage. And what is the cause for this disruption? Jesus. As one theologian notes for Paul, quote, all value now lies in Christ. And therefore, things that were once highly highly estimated, that being his zeal and legal righteousness, are now regarded as worthless, end quote. Paul is holding all of these precious and significant advantages in his grasp, things that in a flesh and blood world would set him above the crowd and cause him to be a standout, but he makes no boast of them, nor does he hold any value in them. Why? Because Christ is greater than all of them. Verse 8, he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When Paul compares uh, the, the worth of these significant things to the significance of knowing Christ, they all pale in comparison. In fact, Paul calls it surpassing worth, means, and that means it's a towering worth. It's a worth that is so above the rest of these other things. It reaches beyond, it reaches so far beyond these other things, as far as the east is from the west. It makes everything else that is measured against it small. Knowing Christ is so much more significant than my ethnicity, than being black, than being white. Knowing Christ is so much more significant than being a part of the Crawford family. Knowing Christ is so much more significant than my collegiate accomplishments or my, or my accomplishments on my job. Knowing Christ is so much more significant than Brian Crawford Dink being the pastor of a church of 500 or 600 or 700 or 800 or whatever. 
Knowing Christ is of surpassing worth than all else is what Paul is saying. Jesus once told a parable in the 13th chapter of Matthew and he compared in the gospel of Matthew the kingdom of God to hidden treasure in a field that when a man finds it, he goes and he hides it again to give him enough time to go and sell everything that he has in order to buy that field where the treasure is. He says that's the kingdom of God. He said, man sells everything he has? Yes. Why? Because when our eyes are open to surpassing treasure, towering treasure, infinitely vastly divided treasure from the old treasure, it makes all the other treasure we value insignificant. When our eyes are truly open to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, then it doesn't matter what school I went to. It doesn't matter whether or not I have a a, a job rank higher than yours. It doesn't matter how much money I have versus the other person. The point is clear in this writing that Paul gives us. You can have everything in Christ or nothing outside of Christ. A life without Christ is the greatest mirage known to humankind because all, though it feels like we have something worthwhile, the money, the fame, the freedom, the accolades, the prestige, the position, the power, it really is nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. It's like holding a handful of sand. There's no value in it. If we had a chart of all of life's accomplishments handy, Paul is saying that literally everything else would be on the side of worthless except for knowing Christ. Nothing in the grand picture of eternity holds any weight if Christ isn't known. But that also means that everything in our lives only holds significance in as far as it points us to knowing God allows us to find joy in God, allows us to better understand God and his love towards us, allows us to better understand God and his grace at work in our lives. All of what we value in life should flow from this aim to know him. The things that we do in life should flow through this aim to know him. Everything we hold dear should bring us back to this aim of knowing him. Use my nationality, use my ethnicity to do what? To know him. Leverage my family, leverage my friends to do what? To know him and to find knowledge of him in and through them. Use my job and use my accolades to do what? To know him. And to find praise for him and to find thanksgiving unto him. And to give glory and offer glory back to him. Use my finances, use my provision to do what? To better know him. Use my provision to help me value you more. 
Help me cherish you more. Everything I have, Lord, everything that I've been given, help me cherish you more. Help me praise you more. Help me celebrate you more. Help me know you more. Nothing that we value should be simply used to value us. Our worth is found in knowing him and knowing his surpassing worth. You and I aren't valuable before God because we are college educated or not college educated. And we, we aren't valuable before God because we are of one ethnicity or another ethnicity. We aren't valuable before God because we have certain talents or other, or, or, or don't have certain talents. So we have certain possessions or don't have certain possessions. Our worth and value before God is simply found in being known by God and knowing God. Being known by God and knowing God. So place all the bricks of your life on this foundation. This is why City Light places all the bricks of our values on this foundation. Everything. We can't be, we're not going to just simply be unified. We want to be unified as it relates to us knowing God and being known by God. If we're just unified for the sake of unity, then guess what? We're missing it. We're not going to just simply be sacrificial for the sake of sacrificial. We want to be sacrificial because in being sacrificial, we can offer, we can allow others to offer praise back to God. And we can know God better in our emptying of power. Do you understand? All of our values. We don't, we don't want to be compassionate and nice just to be nice. We want to be nice and compassionate and graceful and gracious as we share the truth about God because it is knowing God that is of supreme worth and we want others to know God. And so we don't want to violate that opportunity for others to know God by being harsh and rude as we share his truth. So all of those values flow out of the value of Christ and knowing him and placing him at the center of everything. Paul continues his boast when he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The ideal of rubbish is actually a, a, a Greek ideal of excrement. It's waste, fed to dogs. He says, I counted every, all the other, all of your other accomplishments, I counted as food for dogs. Which is interesting when you think about verse 2. He's like, the dogs can have it. They seem to value these things so much, but I value this as nothing more but dog food. And he continues to echo this point over and over and over again, just in these few verses. What is of worth to me? To know Christ. To know Christ. As one theologian puts it, in, in, this, in this particular area, Paul highlights that it's not only knowing Christ, that it, it is knowing Christ, for, uh, that it is for knowing Christ that he has counted all things as lost, but it is for knowing Christ that he has literally lost it all. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Why? That I may gain him, that I may know him. How do you know 
How do you know when we talk about the bricks of our found, that we're laying on top of our foundation of Christ-centeredness? How do you know when the bricks are rightly placed? How do you know when the bricks are on top and not underneath, right? You know what I mean? Where the, where the, bricks, where the bricks are actually underneath and the, are serving as the foundation, and then we just kind of happen to put, sprinkle a little Jesus on top. How do, we, how do we know when the bricks are rightly placed? How do we know that we are finding more worth in the bricks than we are the foundation? Let me ask you a question. What are the things in your life that if you lost them, they would tempt you the strongest to walk away from God? What are the things in your life that if you lost them, they would tempt you the most to walk away from God? Maybe a life goal, maybe a life dream, an ambition that you're chasing. Maybe a dream job, maybe family, possessions, house, car, maybe approval. Approval of man, approval of family members. What is it that you so crave that if you lost it, you would say to yourself, ah, this God thing, man, it's not just serving me well. That's the brick that's under the foundation. That's the brick that's serving as your foundation. The brick that you value so much that it would literally strip you from God. That it, would, it, would, it would pull you away. It would cause you to say, ah, I'm not sure about this God thing. It's just not working. See, before Satan tempted Job in the Old Testament, he consulted God, and, and God actually put forth Job as a worthy saint for Satan's trial, saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But Satan basically said to, to God, back to God, of course he serves you. He has everything. But will he serve you if I take everything he has? And the answer to that question is actually a lot simpler than we realize. See, we, we will only serve Christ when we have nothing left if we understand that we can only truly have everything in Christ. See, if we think that there is something to be had outside of him, then when that thing is taken from us, it will cause us no longer to serve him. But if we realize that in him we have everything, then come whatever we lose, we will still be okay because we have him. Paul gladly suffers the loss of all he previously thought was important. His status, his favor, his position, his pride and his own righteousness because he has found something greater, knowing Jesus. And so in verse 9, he begins to unpack how to know him. He first begins in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The first step Paul identifies in knowing God is to be found in God and not in ourselves. 
In other words, to bring your heart and to bring my heart, to bring our hearts to a place where, where, where we realize that there is nothing in us that's sufficient for our salvation and that apart from him, there is nothing in us that is of any significant value, that it is in him that we find our value, that it is in him that we find our worth and our significance. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Our eternal life hangs on the completed work of Christ on the cross for our sins and the sins of this world. Not, not, not the accomplishments, not the accolades, not the wealth, not the race, not our nationality, not our traditions. Not, we, we have eternal life through the completed work of Jesus. This is what is called justification. It is the condition of no longer being guilty before God, not based on us, based on him. D.A. Carson, the great theologian, writes the following about that, and I quote him now. Paul recognizes that in God's universe, the most important thing is to know God. Knowing Christ as your Lord is more important in politics, more important in sports, more important in movies, more important in social media, more important even than family. And we come to know him by looking away from ourselves and looking to Christ as our righteousness. You should see now how infinitely different Christianity is from other religions. and other systems, you have to do the work. But in Christianity, Christ did the work. We rejoice in those wonderful words, it is finished, end quote. Knowing God in part is about knowing you, knowing that you are sufficient to save yourself. And it charges you to know God. It charges you to rest in God and rely on God. But Paul also says part of knowing him is in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. See, oftentimes we love, we long to know God in our success. We long to know God. We say, Lord, I want to know you. My bank account is completely full. Yes, I want to know you, God, right? I want to, I want to know you when everybody is healthy. Yes, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you when I have no difficulties with my children. I want to know you. When everybody loves me at the job, I want to know you. When I'm literally bossing everybody around and telling everybody what to do, that's when I want to know you. I want to know you when I get wealthy. I want to know you when I get popular. I want to know you when our, when, when our church rises to a thousand people. I want to know you. What we don't long for is to know God and his sufferings. This is where Christ is known most fully, however, because it is where we die. You understand? See, oftentimes we want to know God without death. We want to know Christ without death. We can't know Christ without death because you're too blinded to you. You're living for you. You're pursuing you. You're aiming for you. So you're blinded to Jesus, right? Because it's all about you. It's all about me. But 
But in order to know Christ more, we must learn to die to ourselves more. This is what the scripture calls sanctification. It is the continued progress of Christ through the death of self. We want, to, we want the power of his resurrection, but we don't want the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't, we don't want to share in the sufferings. We just want the resurrection part. Paul says, I want to know him. In order to do so, I have to know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Family, without death, there is no resurrection, right? Resurrection doesn't exist without death. And so we must die to our will daily. We must die to our need to have our way daily. We must die to our ambitions, selfish ambitions daily. We must die to our need to be accepted by the masses or be accepted by our family or by our peers. We must die to our crave for, for comfort and our longing for satisfaction and things that are outside the will of God. That's that. It's with this in mind that we begin to understand God more. As we die with God, as we die with Christ, as we suffer with Christ, it is his grace towards us, believe it or not, that is bringing us to a place where we look to him and away from ourselves. We don't want this, right? We don't want this. But man, let me tell you something about this. This is where you learn to know God. This is where God is. I began to understand who God was through the observation of suffering and through the experience of suffering in my own life and losing things that I never thought I would lose. That's where I found God. This is where we gain the privilege to know him. Thus, suffering brings death to ourselves, but it also brings life in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? Because it brings us to a place where we know him. So when we pray to know him more, understand your prayer. Let me say something. Because, you know, a lot of times we make jokes, you know, about this kind of thing. Well, man, when you, man, that's why I don't pray to know him more, because I know if I pray that. No, 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 no. You desire, you need to know him more. It is for the good of your soul that you know him more. So could the possibility of that knowledge bring about experiences of suffering? Possibly. But remember what Paul said. I count knowing him more of surpassing worth. And all this other stuff, all these trinkets in life that I'm clinging to, that I'm afraid to lose, he says they are like excrement to me because it is so much more valuable to know him. And so pray that prayer. Pray that prayer. Lastly, in verse 11, it says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And it's the idea for Paul that in Christ, there is justification, there is sanctification, but in Christ, there is glorification. 
And so in my knowledge, in my, I, I learned to know him, not just in, not just in, in, in experiencing suffering and sharing in suffering and the resurrection of the dead. And I learned to know him, not just in simply uh, being declared not guilty by him, but I shall know him fully in the attaining of the resurrection of the dead. In my resurrection, that's when I will know him more. That's when I will know him in a different way. The Apostle John tells us it's, it's in that moment that when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he really is. The knowledge of who he is unpacks, is open. And as a result, our transformation is made more full. Do you understand? We see him. And as a result of seeing him, we become like him. So And so knowing him is, is, is not something that is going to be fully, fully reached in this life. We are, we are continuing to progress in our knowledge of him. And even throughout eternity, it's still going to be unpacked more and more and more and unfolded more and more and more. But we are, we are knowing him and our justification, realizing that it is nothing in us that brings us salvation, but it is in him that, that, that we have our salvation. And that, and that in and of itself allows us to suffer well when we suffer because we realize that it is none of these things that I have to have in order to be found righteous in God, but it is going to be in him that are going to be, that are going to be found righteous in God. And then that pursuit is all leading to the glorification, that, that pursuit is leading to the resurrection of the dead. Where, and, and that comes as realizing that, that, that all this other stuff will be done away with. And so it's, it's in that that we grow in our knowledge of God. It is in that that we have the ability to experience knowing Christ. So pursuing Christ-centeredness is pursuing an end where we understand that without Christ we have nothing, but with Christ we have everything. Pursuing Christ-centeredness, rather, is pursuing an end. It is pursuing an end where all the other aims of life run through the aim of knowing him. And all the other achievements in life run through the aim of knowing Christ. And it is realizing that all the other accolades and works in life don't bring us righteousness because it is, it is only in him that we can find righteousness. And it is living life with the hope that all of this one day the struggle and the striving and the, and the possessions and all of that, that that's going to be done away with. And what we will have will be of immeasurable and surpassing worth. And that will be Christ. We will hold the treasure completely in our hands. And we will realize it like we've never realized it before, that nothing else really did matter. And so this is why all the other values of City Light Church are built on this one value. And it's why we pursue building everything we do as a church on this one value. Because our aims and our goals and our ambitions have to flow out of a desire for us as a church to know him and to glorify him. And it has to lead to others knowing him and glorifying him. But this is why you... This is why you, those who become a part of this church and those who are just here, this is why you should pursue 
this in your own life because he is worth it. Amen? And no matter what we have in this life, we truly, no matter what we have in this life, we truly have nothing if we don't have him. Let's pray. God, we are nothing without you. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that we would find our worth and our value in knowing you. We find our worth and our value in growing in you, our worth and our value in not clinging to a righteousness built on our own performance and built on our own accolades, but clinging to a righteousness that is, that is found in Christ Jesus and his work. Not looking, Lord God, to only live on the mountain, Lord, but, but, but finding you even in the valleys, Lord. Because it's in the valleys, Lord, sometimes that our greatest death to ourselves takes place. And Father, knowing you fully as we look to the resurrection of the dead, which we all eagerly, eagerly pursue, knowing that it is there, Lord God, that we will see you as you really are, and as a result, we'll be, we'll be transformed all the more into your likeness, Lord. We will become like you as your knowledge is unpacked in a way before us that we've never experienced in this life. And so, Lord, I pray this prayer for each and every single one of us in this room. Help us, Lord God, grow in the desire to know you more. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.